thank you for coming, and hopefully thank you for staying. Um, my answer to this question is no, that uh, the institutions of, of higher education do not facilitate education. Um, I also would, I had this awful feeling that um, if these sec sessions are to challenge, inspire, and excite, clearly the first presentation did, um, and I'm sure the other two this afternoon will. I'll leave you to choose the middle. Following the great presentation from Gerd, it reminds me I was uh, giving a presentation in Australia, and I followed a presentation on suicide. Um, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I feel the same <laughs> at the moment. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read, this is, a, as you rightly say, a relatively complicated argument, at least to me, and I've used all my <laughs> academic skills to make it even more so. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to share this mainly uh, through reading the proposition to you. Okay. Although there's been considerable debate on contemporary, in contemporary literature on the erosion of public good in higher education, most of it has concentrated on the word public in the phrase rather than the notion of good. A focus on good is attempted here and the distinctions between inherent, intrinsic and instrumental are used in a framework to develop the following idea. That higher education is inherently good. That aspects of its practice are feasibly intrinsically good and that the institutions in which the practice of higher education is delivered, say the universities, are contributive to and instruments of national policy agendas connecting with national uh, policy. This has implications for policymakers when making judgments on resource allocations in terms of individual aspirations and equality in a competitive environment. I refer to good in a number of ways in this paper. The first as public and private, then intrinsic and instrumental. And then positional, which we were hearing some references to in the market, and inherent. I will seek to uh, be clear in the meanings used as my argument turns on such clarity, especially in terms of public policy implications. Much has been written about the common or public good of higher education, and I do not want to rehearse the arguments much more here on, or comment on the shifts in focus that have occurred in educational policy, as they've been well done by others and a number of notable scholars in this room have written on such topics. Sorry. Ah, here we go. Each of these authors have developed the idea that there have been a shift from a good that has distinctive values intended for society in which the institutions of higher, higher education are located to that which is focused on the personal and the private gain of the individual. The distinction for Marginson is based on Samuelson's definition that public goods are non-rivalous and non-excludable and concludes that goods that neither qualify or classified as fully private goods. Moreover, public good, as its best, ties universities into a larger process of democratization and human development. This has resonance with uh, John Nixon's 
who suggests that the public good is a common commitment to social justice and equality. In essence, it alludes to activities that refer to benefits or resources accessible to all. In this form, and for Williams, it includes better informed citizens leading to informed democracies and a more inclusive society and knowledges concerned, conceived of as an end in themselves through participation in HE rather than its outcomes. <coughs> Private goods envision education as a means to the production of social or economic capital, where education itself is less significant than the positional signalling of the accreditation gained. Institutional practice, as distinct from educative practice, has limited intrinsic value, other than developing a more economically productive workforce, supplying a filter for the division of labour, and maintaining strata in society. It risks seeking a public good as no more than the aggregation of self-interest, a neoliberal and rights-based approach that potentially disembowels civic and community obligations in the search for personal benefit, which are generally unobtainable from higher education alone, and it is deceitful to pretend that it does. Indeed, John considers the public good continues to rest on the assumption that strong democratic societies require education and informed publics that are both inclusive and questioning. Within such societies, knowledge is the most public of all public goods, and education, therefore, is an indispensable source, the benefits of which cut across the range of public interests and concerns. If John is right as to the purpose, there might seem to be a mismatch in how policy is enacted and in people's perception of it, and their trust in the government's chosen forms of institutional implementators. The evidence of university qualifications, their grade inflation and discriminatory powers are much clearer in this respect. As the IFS has stated, degree qualification premiums are far from equitably distributed and favour those who already have high income backgrounds and are male. This is to say that inequalities between strata in educational attainment may remain intact even if equalities of educational opportunity have declined. So there's a clear potential distinction between the higher educative practices that underlie the qualifications of the positional good that are attributed to certain holders of qualifications obtained. When we say that education is good, we tend to be making an assertion of its intrinsic good, at the same time endorsing it as a good for something. Yet, as Reed suggests, in asking what education is good for, is to make a conceptual error. It's to treat something which is intrinsically valuable as if it were instrumentally valuable, as if it were good only as a means to some independently specifiable end. My concern here is not, however, whether education constitutes moral worth or moral goodness, but with a state of affairs which makes goodness a thing that is a worthy choice. And that seems to me to pick up with the view that Gerd was showing earlier on. <coughs> whether we think that higher education is dominantly good for the individual's self-interest or supports the common good depends on our understanding of good and of higher education, 
rather than other forms of education which have their own socialising aims. So when we say that higher education is good for enhanced employment, we imply that we support instructional activities that produce personal outcomes that rewards first the individual and then perhaps others. Or when we say that education is good, we support a more general aesthetic of educative activities that is good for all those able to appreciate, and that seems to me to be a, a, an educative role itself, and when we say that education then has a common good, we mean that it has an intrinsic value that enhances the good of the community. When we talk of education as, a, as good in this way, we might be endorsing a notion of human flourishing, but not necessarily a form of um, prescribed um, well-being. This meaning is distinct from a goal of economic prosperity and takes its meaning not in terms of functionality, but as an absolute good, in the way that justice is good. Moreover, it implies that what is intrinsically good is a fitting object of desire, again, coming back to the presentation before, and involves having an adequate idea of understanding its appropriateness. This is not to deny that other things may be good and that they might be comparatively more significant in certain circumstances, or indeed, that something may have properties of goodness, yet not be good. How then might good be applied to higher education policy as an educative rather than an institutional process? And indeed, does higher education offer anything other than instrumental goods? To do this, we need to understand if higher education is intended to deliver good in terms of its own properties of teaching, learning and research, or in terms of delivering government socio-economic policy, where governments have responsibilities for funding and regulating universities, which allows them to steer these institutions in techno-administrative ways which impinge on academic, cultural and educational practices. Does higher education seek to realise the potential of good in others, and can one evidence that they possess this good? For instance, to what extent has the stock of humanity and cultural capital increased in the UK? Who is doing the metrics for this, one might ask? Moreover, we need to establish if alternative suppliers of education or qualifications cannot better produce what is taken as the good in terms of what is relevant to those who receive or provide the good. However, the nature of this good might be problematic to determine as the often claimed benefits of higher education are arguably illusionary, ideological, or unable to be established as distinctive higher education institutional contributions to the good, since structural changes prevent any assessment of alternatives, for example, the graduate-only entrance to nursing, accountancy and law. There are other questions that arise is education or credentialised higher education itself good? Or are there certain forms of it intrinsically good, others instrumental and others bad? Can education be considered outside the practice that it delivers? Does, the need, does this need an appreciation of those goods by participants of higher education? In which case, does higher education need to educate those it educates to see the good in its offering outside the instrumental. 
Should the objectives of higher education be to widen our understanding of the world, to allow one to appreciate it better, to transform the educated person's perspective of the world? In this sense, it's feasible to argue that the practice of education is inherently good, for it enables the emergence of the intrinsic values of flourishing and contentment through the expansion of the mind, through rationality, care, respect, veracity, gratitude, self-improvement and freedom. All of those things, I would argue, are not achievable in a uh, consumeristic society which depends upon people being permanently unsettled. Notwithstanding my earlier comments that education is not institutional bound, it's beyond the institution, I now want to consider education when it is as in the case of higher education institutions. I have selected the not-for-profit part of formal education, for this is voluntarily undertaken, normally by adults, and involves the public as stakeholders, and often as funders. It is best served by academics who care, and have reached a level of competency that enables them to retain the trust of the public, and it has intrinsic properties. In this end, the practice of education rather than merely teaching, complies with McIntyre's notion of practice that has internal good to the form of the activity such as inquiries of physics, chemistry and biology. For McIntyre, a practice is not just a set of technical skills upon which undesirable central control can be forced by an institution such as an in a university. For institutions, according to McIntyre, characteristically and necessarily concerned with external goods. They are structures in terms of power and status, and they distribute money, power and status as rewards. By, distinct, by distinctively aligning practice with internal, intrinsic good, and institutions with external goods, and although this is contested, McIntyre offers us a framework in which to consider the complex notion of value inherent, not just in teaching per se, but in public higher education. However, the pressure from governments for more rigorous managerial control on teaching frame educative experiences in terms of value for money, and in order to control important aspects of this mission, steal from higher educative practices their intrinsic value. As Moore has commented, it is also apparent to many UK academics that their practices are continuously vulnerable to the acquisitiveness and competitiveness of the institution. Nevertheless, it remains feasible that the provision of higher education, which has properties of emancipation, justice and self-independence, might be good in principle, but education only becomes an intrinsic good when there is a state of affairs that exemplifies these properties, that is, people are more emancipated, have greater social mobility, or are treated more justly. It is, in this, it is in the actual that the intrinsic value resides, not in the abstract imagining of the good, although this may be good-making properties. Thus, to know whether education is an intrinsic good, we need to know what the practice of higher education results in, the state that and th that a certain state of affairs obtains. In this sense, a form of higher education may have intrinsic value based on the good properties that it advocates, 
yet the form of higher education outcomes that it provides may not be so defined. Although not clear, concerns about the social and indeed personal consequences of our current higher education policy have been voiced in terms of distribution of benefits and social mobility. Unfortunately, I believe the recent TEF consultation on subject level teaching does little to abate those concerns mentioned here. However, without such intrinsic values, the notion of education and its attribution as an inherent good is ruptured. This is the case of instruction compared to education, where no intrinsic values are implied outside the appropriate social values or where educative practices attempt to inculcate specific ways of life, which I think might have been at the core of Barbara's comment early on. In the first case, an educative, educative practice involves in instruction are morally inactive and are instrumental, and in the second, what values exist are instrumentally moribund, requiring the practice to be successfully instrumental, at best or at worst negative. Society clearly has choices over the forms of education that it wants, and as the above example of public-private good illustrates, the shift has been towards self-interest, taking the distinctiveness of educational institutions away from a mission of societal support in the ways envisioned by Kant in the conflicts of the faculties. I want, therefore, to suggest that higher education is inherently a good, yet it cannot be wholly an intrinsic good when it is provided as a means for something else. It may retain properties of good if its intrinsic values enable an understanding of what society takes as good in normative terms. Moreover, it retains the inherent notion of good even when it does not promote intrinsic value, but is con conceived of as an offering of good within the domain of normative expectation. That it does not encourage the development and accumulation of knowledge for personal use in ways, and that it doesn't encourage uh, the accumulation of knowledge for personal use in ways that harm others. The inherent good of higher education can then be found in forms of education that constitute its practice, such values as seeking truth, critical reasoning, rationality, practical judgment, and understanding one's physicality. The intrinsic cannot be expected to be found in a similar list of values, and this makes it harder to comprehend and manage. For sure, accomplishment, understanding, enjoyment, and deep relationships might have certain resonance with what some might consider to be a good life, yet it's not appropriate for any institution of higher education to impose. Indeed, I think that education passes an important test of inherent good in that it exists not only when it is desired, but when it is merely present, and that it is regretted when absent. In this sense of good, it, ma it makes it a desired choice, the extent of which is determined by how desirable are its intrinsic values. If we explore this in a little depth, we were able to suggest that education as an institutional practice has the power to enhance private benefit as well as public. It can be codified within certain curricula and delivered through institutions, which can reflect meritocracy as well as privilege. It can be delivered by those 
who value the interrelatedness of a complex and detailed understanding of their subject at a level that transcends the skills of disciplinary practice and is contextualised in the knowledge of humanity. This is achieved in forms of pedagogy that go beyond the reality of the instrumental understanding to levels of enlightenment that, rather than ease the achievement of its com commodified private good, see the skill and content as problematic of the whole purpose of education. Examples of the use of forms of good are difficult to find are difficult to find in government formal documentation. A search was undertaken of a discussion and policy papers for the word good and how it is issued. I chose to do this to allow comparisons ahead of the detailed legal language that is necessarily used in law. For instance, in this first paper, Success of a Knowledge Economy, the word good is used eight, on eight occasions. It is used twice in the same section. Its first use concerns a good value for students as a qualifier of the good practice objectives and on other occasions in good terms of good outcomes. In all cases, the word good is used as an adjective, its impact being reliant on the meaning attributed to good. Higher education as a good, private or public, is not mentioned. It might also be interesting to note in the introduction of the subject-based TFF good value for money doesn't appear so in the, uh, the TFS recent um, announcement of subject area um, uh, teaching, qualification, uh, teaching quality. Good value for money doesn't appear and seems to be replaced by value for money they, the students, deserve, which opens up a whole new remit of whether indeed um, students should now be judged on desert rather than on merit. Finding comparable documents is difficult for, uh, for other nations, and I've looked at Australia and the United States. As this is an indicative investigation to expand its reach, I've taken one recent government documentation or statement from each. Driving innovation, fairness and excellence in Australian higher education is a paper uh, that I've looked in Australia, and then a speech from the then uh, Secretary uh, of Education, uh, Arnie Duncan in 2015 from the United States. In the first, good is used in the same way three times, twice, twice to respond to good value for money and as a good deal for taxpayers. In Duncan's speech, good is used 11 times, twice in terms of advocating public good, once attributing widening participation as a good, and eight times uh, in, in the same form as it is uh, uh, in other texts. Unsurprisingly, the overriding impression is of notion of higher education conceived of as an economic and private good within the rhetoric of those who direct institutions. Finally, we turn into the UK, the recently announced review of post-18 education and funding. The vision is clearly one of education as value for money involved in a system designed to drive the economic agenda of the university and, college, and colleges and to deliver the government's objectives for science, research and development and industrial strategy. From this uh, uh, crude overview of documents from the three countries undertaken above, it seems that institutionalised higher education 
as an intrinsic good is difficult to support. As it, it institutionalized practice, especially when paid for, which interweaves an external purpose whilst retaining an intent of personal transition and can enhance one's well-being as well as the others. I close by asking why should it be assumed that, then, in the UK, university level education should be under the direct control, regulation and funding of the state? And indeed, what seems an important question if we are unable to establish the intrinsic good properties of higher education that encourages them. So if higher education is not intrinsically good, why are uh, society paying for it? If we fail to confirm the notion of intrinsic value in higher education's purpose, which government has failed to do, then, it return, then higher education returns to the elite, who already find ways of enjoying the benefits of a system designed to offer open access and personal flourishing and where there will be little justification under those circumstances for government subsidy. <coughs> Margison makes a strong case for the public nature of knowledge and argue, argues that the private goods depend on public goods nesting in the institutional settings that it creates. And this leads me to consider that we should acknowledge that the private dimension of higher education has inherent and positional value and that the public dimension has both inherent and intrinsic value. It's been argued that the rate of change in higher education policy across Europe has accelerated in recent years, and this has a number of impacts on the public good and, and public trust invested in higher education. It seems likely that the clarity we need to be sought through the clarity will needs to be sought through discussion of what higher education has and distinctively ask what it creates for society when we discuss the issues of democracy, justice and freedom. I believe there is that the, the issue of institutionalisation of higher education has uh, a case to answer. We need to recognise and act on the good of higher education and not be seduced by the dominant policy discourse of personal power, wealth and pleasure. It is a question of whether private goods are allowed to play a dominant and destructive role in the overall institutionalization of higher education through the attempted totalizing of intrinsic good in educational practices, through the externalities of economic policy driven by institutional management, or whether an option opt optimal balance is achieved. Achieving such a balance is what makes higher education an inherent good. It's not enough to argue that universities can be compared within the category, their own categories of learning in terms of external achievements and render the highest ranking as good of their class <coughs> or that the criteria upon which these judgments are made are non-consequential to the outcome achieved. Our policyholders have allowed a drift along these lines and the mantra of value for money attributed to those in ignorance have been facilitated for su by such lack of care. It is accuracy and sincerity in the sense used by Williams as the virtues of truthfulness that we need from our policyholders, management and ourselves if the public are to know if higher education warrants any accolade of intrinsic good leading to inherent good. In general, we and our policymakers 
need to be tighter on the terms applied to higher education and its institutionalised forms. And if we continue to get this wrong in regulation, action and spirit, any public affirmation of the institutional <coughs> universities will be lost. Thank you. Thank you.